Well, the four Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they're called Gospels because the word Gospel means good news. It's each one tells the good news about Jesus Christ. So the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us about the Messiah whose coming was prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. I think we all know that. We understand it very well. That's why they're called the Gospels. Now, the first three, the first three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. You hear them frequently referred to in the material, if you're reading about them, called simply the Synoptics. And if you're not familiar with, the, with those terms, then uh, you probably don't know what he's talking about. You read, well, what, what do you mean, synoptics? What's that? That's the first three of the Gospels. Now, why are they called synoptics? Well, because the word, think of the word sin, S-Y-N, not S-I-N. We know what that one is. But S-Y-N means same. You think of the words in uh, uh, sync. Uh, uh, syncretism, so on. S-Y-N means same. And the latter part of that word is optic. And I'll bet you can guess what that is, especially if you have gone to, to the eye doctor, which is called a or an optometry. Okay. Uh, optic is uh, relating to sight or view. So the term synoptic means same view. Each of the four each of the three synoptics, they each tells the same story. Now there are differences to be sure, but I remember very well a a man that I knew back in the uh, uh, back in the seventies. Well, I, I knew him until his death in uh, recent years, but <clears throat> he was a member of the church, but he never was able to read or write. And uh, you know he he tried he tried, but he, somehow he couldn't get it. But uh, in, in any case, it was not that he wasn't a thinking person. He put a lot of thought, a lot of study in his own way into uh, the, the things of the Bible and so forth. But he couldn't read it. So what he had, he had these, remember these old, remember the record player days? Any young people in this audience, if we had any? <laughs> if, any, any of the younger people, uh, sometimes when we do have them, uh, don't, remember, don't know what I'm talking about. You know, the old record, you know, we go, used to go to the record store and buy these records, uh, the albums and the small records as well. Uh, nowadays, you know, even the, uh, the other, the, no longer do we even use, well, it keeps, it keeps evolving, put it that way. So people would go to the record store and buy records, and he found some records, and he had an old record player where he put the little needle on there, have to be careful, you know, otherwise you'll scratch it, and uh, of the Bible of the New Testament at least. And so uh, he started listening to Matthew and he listened and he listened and he listened so much his family got so tired of Matthew. I tell you, he listened and listened. There's a guy reading a very great, you know, a, an excellent voice and, and enunciation and all of that. And he read through, as in the King James Version, and he read and he listened to it and he would stop it and he would think about it. And uh, that's what he, con he called studying. I'm going to let me study about that for a while. And uh, that's, uh, so he would uh, think about it and think it through. And he, he would learn an awful lot just by listening to uh, the reading of Matthew's gospel. So he got through that and he talked about it. He talked to me about it quite a bit and things he was learning. And then he started on Mark. And he came to me one day and he said, hey, that's the same thing. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, you'll find out. And Luke, you'll get the same thing again. 
but they're different in some ways. They focus on, on, they emphasize different aspects of the ministry of the life and ministry of Jesus. So anyway, he was, uh, he was learning that through listening to re- recordings of the Gospels. But you do find that, to be sure, the synoptics tell the same story. Now, but there are differences, as I said. Most scholars today, and this was not always true, but most today, the overwhelming vast majority, believe that Mark's gospel is the oldest. Mark rose first. And th- that may be true, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But uh, most believe that Mark's gospel was first, and that Matthew and Luke followed the outline supplied by Mark. If you read Mark's gospel and then you go and read Matthew, you will see the similarity. It seems like Matthew is relying on Mark. If indeed Mark wrote first, then Matthew must be relying at least to some extent on Mark. He had, in other words, he had a copy of Mark laying there as he wrote his gospel. And then if you read Luke, you see that Luke seems to have had a copy of Mark there as well. So you look at this, the, the Matthew and Luke and they have things in common uh, they, they have those things that are in common with Mark's gospel. So it is assumed, it is assumed that Mark wrote first, Matthew and Mark, or sorry, Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel in writing their gospels. However, <clears throat> Matthew and Luke have things in common with each other that do not appear in Mark's gospel. So how do you explain that? Well, then comes the theory of the two source. It's the two source theory. And they claim that, well, this other source, in addition to Mark, is no longer extant. We don't have it. So what do they call it? Q. You ever heard of that? So they relied on Q. Q is a, uh, just the, the letter Q, and it, re, it means quell. Quell. And that's a German from the German, which means source. So it's the second source. Now, you can't prove any of that. You can't prove there was a second source. There could have been multiple sources they had access to. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, of course, we understand that the one who guided, guided and protected the boundaries of the writing of those Gospels was God himself. That's why we say they're inspired of God. So that's what's really important to us. And you know, another thing that needs to be considered, if you're interested in... Uh, you know, critical studies. Matthew and Luke have things in each of them that are unique to them. And so, where did, where did that come from? At the end of the day, we know it all was guided and controlled by and inspired by God Himself. So we have these synoptic Gospels that tell us what? The story of Jesus. They tell us about his ministry. They begin in different places. For example, Mark begins right there. He starts right away talking about John the Baptist in order to lead to the baptism and the Galilean ministry of Jesus. No virgin birth there. Nothing about Mary, the angel coming to Mary. It just starts right there. And for that reason, some of the critical scholars say, well, Mark doesn't know anything about the virgin birth. That must have been something that came along later. You know, somebody else made that up. <laughs> so, uh, no, that, you know, that's kind of silly because just because Mark didn't write about it doesn't mean he wasn't aware of it. That's just, that's just uh, so much silliness from my point of view. The, the point, what I'm getting at here, however, is that the synoptics are called synoptics because they, they have so much in common with each other. 
they present the same, they're, they're said to present essentially the same view of Jesus. So they're therefore synoptic, same view. But have you ever noticed that John's gospel is very different? That's why it's not one of the synoptics. <laughs> it's different. It's not the same view. You know, Matthew begins with uh, the events leading to the virgin birth. Luke does that. He gives the backstory and then leads to the virgin birth. Mark begins with the baptism, you know, the backstory leading to the baptism of the Galilean ministry. But John, boy, he backs it on up a little ways. Let's just, just, we've re- looked at this before, but let's briefly review it. In John chapter 1, just to illustrate, to show you what I'm talking about. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. goes on to say in verse 14, the Word was made flesh. Now, that goes back a ways, doesn't it? Long before the birth of Jesus, or the conception of Jesus, this goes back to prehistory and shows his origin, or that is to say, what he was prior to the human conception. So you see how different these Gospels are, the different approaches they take. Also, there are many other differences with John's Gospel. But I'd like to comment just briefly before we move on with this. You know, this says that the Word was with God. Why is he called the Word here? You look up that term, and what does it mean? Well, somebody, some people say, well, that's a... If you look at the Old Testament, the, the Word, the, term, the words back there translated Word and Spirit and Wisdom all refer to the same thing. It could be it's God's wisdom or God's utterance and so on. In other words, it's God acting within the creation. Uh, For example, you see, you read about the word going forth from his mouth. The word goes forth from God's mouth in the Old Testament and creates, or the word goes forth with healing and so on. So some some would look at that and say, well, you know, this is not talking about... uh, uh, anything that's personal, this is just that utterance that goes out of God's mouth and, and, and does all these wonderful things. But no, it's a title. It's a title. Remember Revelation 19 that uh, describes the, the coming of Christ? Remember what the name that is written, one of the names given him there? His name written on his thigh, the Word of God. Why would that be? Why, why is that significant? In the Old Testament, the Word goes out and does what? what God commands, God does God's will. So here you have the Word doing what? Why, why is this a good title for the Messiah or for Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ? Because he's God's agent. And also he continues to be God's agent even today. We'll get to that a little later, show you the significance of it. But uh, uh, that's, that's, that's why he's called the Word. That's a very good title. He, one of many titles that he has. Now, when you put all these four Gospels together, they give us a full picture of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We have the full picture here. You know something about his human origin. We know something about his family. Uh, quite a bit about his family, actually. Uh, we know about his ministry, where it began, where it ended up. We know what he taught. We have some very, very rich teachings in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. So we have a very full picture. And and John's Gospel focuses on the divinity of Christ, as well as other things that are not brought out in the synoptics. But actually, the divinity of the Christ, the thought of that, does not begin with John. Uh, I want you to turn back with me to 
Well, before we go there, let's see. We want to go to... Uh, we'll save that for a little bit later. But what you, what you have here, let me just summarize it very quickly. What, we're, what we see here, we see a full picture of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, go back to Matthew chapter 16 and see something that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 16, we've looked at this before. You may remember sometime back, uh, I had a sermon here entitled The Ecclesia. It's also pronounced Ecclesia. You hear it both ways. You take your choice. But uh, in that particular sermon, we explored this. Well, let's review it here in Matthew chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 13. So now when Jesus came into the dist- uh, district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If it's different from yours, it's uh, it's one of the modern English translations. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, at this point, some, some scholars would say, Well, he probably didn't really say that. Why is that? Because this concept of Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God, that, that, that expression was not in use early on. That was something that was adopted later. That, you know, that is sheer nonsense. You know why? Because you find it all the way back in the time of David. When David was given the promise, when the covenant was made with him, and he talked about your son who will sit upon your throne after you, ultimately this points to the, the ultimate son, the Messiah. He said, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So the people of Jesus' day would have understood automatically that the Messiah, the Davidic king, is the son of God. That's one of his titles. Now, of course, as it turns out, when we find out about how he came to his human existence, the, te- the expression Son of God takes on much greater meaning, doesn't it? Much deeper meaning. But in any case, Peter says, he replied, you're, <coughs> you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, the word here is Petros, and on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It means it's not going to be stamped out, it's not going to fizzle out, it's not going to play out, it will remain. It's permanent. You know, this is a, this, as a particular text here is one that has been debated greatly by Protestants and Catholics. Uh, three basic views, there are probably more than that, but the three most popular ones, first of all, is that uh, the, the use of the words here, Petros and Petra, referred to two different people. Uh, the first one, Peter, was called Simon, was given the nickname Petros. That's a Greek term. But in Aramaic, it was probably Kepha. And they probably, that was probably the language they spoke to each other in when they were together. If they were speaking to Greeks, obviously they would use Greek, those who knew Greek. But uh, anyway, he said, you're Peter, you're Petros, and about this Petra, that's Greek. I will build my church. I say, well, see, there's a difference. There's a little pebble and a big rock, big stone. Uh, probably not. I'm okay with that interpretation, but that's probably not what he's saying because... Because you wouldn't normally call a person Petra, give him that nickname, because that is the feminine form of Petros. 
So if you're talking to a man, you're not going to give him the feminine form of a, you know, the name The Rock. You'll give him the masculine name. <coughs> Even though the feminine is the one that normally is used. So some people say, well, the first uh, Petros, the Petros there, you are Peter, that means Simon. And the second one is Christ. Upon this rock, myself, I will build my church. That seems a little awkward for one reason. It seems awkward to say, I'm going to be the builder, and I guess who I'm going to build my church on me. <laughs> yeah. That seems a little awkward. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it seems a little awkward. Uh, the, a better, I think, a better understanding is this. You are the rock, and upon this rock of the confession you just made, I will build my church. This rock, meaning the confession of Peter, which was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That makes perfectly good sense. And yet there is another, another, that in my opinion, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to agree with it. I can't force you to be right. <laughs> no, no. You don't have to agree with it. But, you know, as, as I said, that the, the explanation I just gave you, I think, is, uh, uh, it's plausible, certainly. But the other is that uh, Jesus is saying, you are Kepha, in Aramaic, you are Kepha, you are the rock, and upon this Kepha, see, in Aramaic there's no difference. And upon this Kepha, this rock, I will build my church. So I think what he's probably saying here is that you, Peter, are going to be one of, not the only, but one of the foundational pillars of the church that I'm going to build. It doesn't mean he's the only one. It means that he's one of them. We understand, of course, that the, uh, the other apostles were also foundational pillars. But I think, he's, I think this is a pun on a name. Now, interestingly enough, I want you to look at uh, verse, uh, drop down to verse uh, 23. And this is when uh, Peter, after Jesus tells him he's going to his death, he says, oh no, it will never be. I'll stand with you. You know, all this brave talk about what a great defender he's going to be of, of Jesus. And uh, Jesus said, but he, in verse 23, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. The word translated hindrance is stumbling block. In other words, you are a foundational rock for the church I will build. And now, at this point in time, you've become a stumbling block, a rock of offense to me, the one who is going to build this church. You see, you see the, the play on words there. So I thought that was kind of interesting to note that. But in any case, my, it's my view that Jesus is saying, you are the rock. That's the nickname I've given you. And upon this rock, you, Peter, and the others as well, I will build my church. Now, that's what I want to focus on, though. The church that Jesus built. And by the way, we're, this, is, this whole sermon today is the introduction. Introduction to a series entitled, The Church That Jesus Built. I want to follow up in the, you know, my future visits with the, this series. The Church That Jesus Built. And we're going to go through the book of Acts. And we're going to let the topics that are raised in each chapter of the book of Acts determine what the topic of the sermon is going to be. Because there's all kinds of things that come up as you read through the book of Acts. Lots of different subjects there, so we'll let that be our guide in determining uh, the particular topics we'll talk about. And at the same time, we'll get a look inside of the church 
in its origin, the church as it developed, as it expanded outside the Jewish uh, people and entered into other, uh, incorporated other peoples and went beyond even that and spread around the world ultimately. And the problems that they faced, the challenges that came their way, the inner church problems as well as problems from the outside. So there's all kinds of lessons, all kinds of good uh, spiritual uh, lessons that we can learn from reading through the book of Acts. But today we're just in the introduction. We want to talk about the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, as I said earlier, we have these four Gospels that tell us all about Jesus. And here in one of the Gospels, you know, it's very rare that Jesus used the word church. You only find it in Matthew. You only find it in two places. And so for that reason, some people say, well, this must have been a later edition. No, no, it's not necessary to think that at all. Because the word ecclesia was a commonly used term. Anytime you're talking about a gathering, you might use that word, but there are other words meaning the same thing. He actually had quite a bit to say about the church. The Old Testament has a lot to say about the church. Uh, we looked at that in the sermon entitled The Ecclesia. But uh, just because he uses the term specifically twice here, once in Matthew 16 and then also in Matthew 18, uh, doesn't mean that this was a later addition to the text. No, he said, I will build my church. Now then, having acknowledged that we have all this material about the Messiah himself, four Gospels, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be great to have at least one book about the church that he would build? And, you know, we do. It's the book of Acts. Actually, the rest of the Bible is about the church that Jesus would build. But the book of Acts in particular, because it tells us about the foundation of that church, how it, was, how it first came to be. And also we're going to see, maybe if we'll get to it, we'll see it today, that the church, even though he says, I will build my church, it really didn't begin when the Spirit came in the book of Acts in chapter 2. It had already begun but now it enters into this new phase because Messiah had come. So when he says, I will build my church, actually there were already, even back before the, the flood, already members of the church. As we shall see, uh, as I said, if we get to it today. So we have these four wonderful books that tell us about Jesus, the founder of the church, and we now we also have a book that tells us all about the church and its foundation and its 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 expansion and all the problems or many of the problems that uh, it had to confront in its early formative years now i want to go back to uh, as i mentioned john's gospel gives us a deeper revelation a further revelation of what the synoptics give. The synoptics focus on the ministry of Jesus. Well, John's gospel does too, but it, it goes beyond that. <coughs> it focuses more on his divinity. And, you know, the question would come up, were the apostles themselves aware of Jesus' divinity, his divine nature? Were they aware of it during his ministry? And I would say that they were not. They were not. I'm talking about early on. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so shocked when he died 
or actually they, they would have been, I suppose, they thought he were uh, God in the flesh, but they didn't think in those terms. You see, when they thought of the Messiah, they thought in terms strictly of this Davidic king coming to begin his reign on the throne of David on this earth, <coughs> and that eventually he would have successors, and so on. But they didn't think in terms of uh, the Messiah as being you know, in terms of strictly of his deity, as you see unfolding in John's gospel. However, however, there was an event that took place that caused them to begin to finally get it. And you see that toward the end. Look at Luke. Look back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. First of all, I want to mention concerning the book of Acts, the book of Acts. Again, this will be the last chapter in the book of Luke, but while you're turning there, I'll comment on the book of Acts itself. <clears throat> there are many scholarly theories <coughs> about the book of Acts. Some believe it was written very late, even after the first century. That, I think, most scholars today throw that out and say, no, no, it was written much earlier than that. Some people uh, have ascribed it to one or to various authors, but I'm not going to go into all of that, but the preponderance of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that this, the, the author here was none other than Luke the physician, the same one who wrote the fourth gospel, the, I'm sorry, the third gospel, Luke's gospel, the same man. So if you, you, when you end Luke's gospel, it continues the story in Acts chapter 1. So next time when I'm here, we're going to start with Acts chapter 1. But for now, let's go back to Luke's gospel and see how the story there ends. And now he writes this second treatise. It's called the book of, book of Acts where he continues the account. So this is the story of Jesus, of his life, of his ministry. And we read right to the end of his life and what happened there. And that's when some very major changes started happening in the lives of the disciples. And then when you skip over to the book of Acts, that's part two. And now you're going to read about the continued ministry of Jesus, but not an earthly ministry. It's now a heavenly ministry, and he's acting through, he's ministering through his disciples. And that's what this is all about when chapter two, when we read of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see something very interesting unfolding at the end of Luke's gospel. And now you're going to see they're beginning to finally get it and see who he is and understand more about him than they ever understood in his earthly ministry. Because, you know, they were always going around confused, it seems. He says, I'm going to die. They say, oh, no, you're not. We won't let that happen. You know, Peter says that. Uh, so they were obviously, they didn't get it. Now they do. Now let's, let's take up that account. This is after the resurrection. This is in Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you say that I have. Now, you might ask at this point, so wait a minute. I thought he was raised as a spirit being. And yet here he is saying, touch me, I'm not a spirit. 
What does that mean? <clears throat> you know, is it, is it out of the question that a spirit being can have a material body? No, no, not at all. Yeah, Jesus was right. That body that went into the tomb, it was raised on the third day, but it was transformed, transformed. And you find now he's in a body that, guess what, can materialize in a room instantly behind closed doors, locked doors. One that can, you know, just vanish out of sight, walking along the roadway. Uh, one that can do all kinds of things like that. So that's not really your, your standard material body, is it? <laughs> he has a materiality about him for sure. They can touch him. And you're going to see they, he even ate with them. That takes a body. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a body to do that. But I don't see any contradiction with this idea that a spirit being can have a material body. What it means is that Jesus was not confined to, limited by the material body with which he appeared to them in. That's the point. In other words, put it, to put it in modern terms, he could beam up, beam out, <laughs> do whatever he wanted to do. He was not confined to that material body. And when he had said these things, verse 40, when he had, he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, now you understand that, what this is saying. Same thing you would, same experience you would have if a deceased loved one came back and appeared to you. On the one hand, it would be, you'd be, you'd have, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd have your mouth wide open in disbelief, and yet, at the same time, there'd be an element of joy there, wouldn't there? You could kind of, under, this is, that's what this is saying. And this is what they were doing. Obviously, they, didn't, they hadn't gotten the picture before, had they? They didn't quite get it. When he told them about he was going to have to go to his death and rise again on the third day, they didn't get that. But he, he did exactly that. He went to his death, and now there he is. And they're still startled and, and, and scared, and yet joyful at the same time. So having all these emotions going on. He said to them, latter part of verse 41, Have you anything here to eat? So, so he shows he can eat. You know, if it's a spirit, if it's a pure spirit, the food just fall right on through. <laughs> you, gotta, you, gotta, you know, you can't even get it, you can't even chew it. Can't pick it up. So, you know, it, but I know I've, I've seen Ghost too many times in the movie. <laughs> They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. You know, which reminds me, in the kingdom of God, if you're just pure spirit and don't have any kind of material form, that's going to be terrible because I love to eat. <laughs> broiled fish sounds okay, but I'm thinking of the same, some things that sound even better. But anyway, uh, and, and think about it. Eat all you want and not worry about putting on the old tummy like so many of us do. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem." You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. 
and stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now he's talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But you notice there's something very, very interesting here. He doesn't say, hang around and eventually my Father will send His Spirit. No, He says, stay here. I am sending the Spirit. What does that tell you? You never expected a Davidic monarch to be distributing the Spirit, did you? So now they're beginning to get it. He's opened their minds to the Scriptures, and now they're seeing Him for what He really is, for who He really is, and for what it really means to be Jesus the Messiah. So I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He told them that in the night of His betrayal. He talked about going away, sending the Comforter, using this figurative language to talk about how He would come back to them in a different form. He said, I will come to you, and my Father and I will make our abode with you, referring to the Holy Spirit. And now here you see that, it, they, obviously they didn't get it then, but now they're getting it. He says, I will send, I am sending the promise upon you. And you will be clothed with power from on high. And of course that did happen, Acts chapter 2, you read about it. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands... He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, now get this, and was carried up into heaven. Now we'll see later in the book of Acts that they were standing there looking up, watching him ascend. It's not some kind of you know, spiritual experience that happened in their minds and, uh, you know, uh, isn't wonderful, he's with the Lord now, nothing like that. They saw him go up there. And there's something else interesting, though, here, the way this is worded. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You remember what he said in the night of his betrayal in the upper room? You remember what he said to them? Don't let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many rooms and so on. He says, he told them, I'm going away. Don't be troubled though because I'm sending the helper to you, the paraclete. Obviously they didn't get it, but now here, you know, why did he tell them don't be troubled? Because they were terribly troubled when he was taken away and he knew that if he went away, he was no longer with them to guide them, protect them, help them along the way. He's no longer there. They would be beside themselves and fear and anxiety and all of those terrible things. And yet here, what do we read? As they were watching him leave them, it says, they went with great joy. That's a change, isn't it? They're not troubled. They're not mourning. They have great joy. Why? Because now they get it. Now they get it. And you notice it says they worshipped him. Now I know, I know what all the the Unitarian arguments are. Say, so, well, that word worship, it really means honor. There are different kinds of honor. Uh, the highest honor goes to God, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's they're, they're trying to say, in other words, Jesus doesn't get the same honor that the Father gets. Even though Jesus himself indicated that if you don't honor, honor to honor me and the Father, you know, he who honors the Father honors me, me and the Father, and so on. But no, listen. It is true that these terms, some of these terms translated worship in some translations, 
can mean simply to show honor by bowing the head. But look, they were looking up. They were looking up. Get the context here. They weren't bowing, uh, just bowing the head before a king or a, you know a queen or something like that. That's a, you showed you know due respect that way. And that word, sure enough, the word can be used that's translated sometimes translated worship, but it's not worship in the sense you worship God. But here, they're watching him go up to the throne in heaven. It says, and they worshipped him. The word obviously means what? Just honored highly. No, it means they worshipped him. Now they get it. He was to be worshipped. Why? Because the ascension. See, we just think, we, we're, we're, we live in an age where we see airplanes and helicopters and things like that all the time. You know, people riding the airways up there. We know about that. They never saw any of that. But they did see this guy, this man, that had come back from the dead and was standing before them, in fact, who appeared before them in a locked room. And now they're there in Bethany or near Bethany and they see him rising up into the sky until he disappears out of sight. That's something you didn't see every day. In fact, I don't think many people, well, some people saw Elijah, but they just didn't, that's not something, an everyday occurrence. Nobody said, well, does he have a jet pack or anything like that? There was no such thing. No, you know, but they knew what this meant. You know what it means? It's more than just a guy rising up into the sky. Like Elijah was taken up into the sky and obviously taken elsewhere. But uh, no, this is more than that. This, you see, the, ascen the ascension really means the accession. That means they knew where he was going. He was going to take his place at the right hand of the throne of, of Almighty God on the throne over this whole universe. And you know what that means? And they knew exactly what it meant. It means he's going to rule on behalf of God Almighty himself. That's something nobody ever expected the Davidic monarch to do. And yet now they're getting it. That's why they worshipped him. That's why they returned to Jerusalem with great joy because they knew he hadn't really left them. He would be with them in a way far more meaningful, far greater than he had ever been with them before when the Holy Spirit would come. And on that day, the church would expand 3,000 baptized on that day and many thousands of others on subsequent days. And we're going to take up that story next time I'm here. We'll, we'll shut this off. This is just the introduction, as I said. And we'll take a look next time a little more closely at what happens next in the story of the church that Jesus built.